Scripture, but it's the one I, I would like for you to put in your pocket and meditate on throughout the week. And it's this, Jesus identifies with us so that we can identify with Him. Jesus identifies with us so we can identify with Him. And the exhortation is, is quite simple. Uh, repent and keep repenting if you are a Christian. Follow Jesus. And if you've become a Christian, be baptized. Be obedient to the Lord Jesus by following Him into the waters of baptism. Let's pray and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we ask that You would eliminate all distractions from our vision, that You would focus our minds on Christ, and that You would feed us. We come into this new year, some of us strong, many of us weak. All of us in need of Jesus. We need You now, Lord, as much as we ever have. Pray that You would speak to us this morning. You would pour out Your Spirit here afresh. And that You would move us to worship You with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. Speak now. Your people listen. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's set the stage just a little bit before we get started today. Uh, remember, back in Matthew chapter 1, he opens his gospel by making quite, well, quite the declaration. He says that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what he is trying to impress upon us with this thesis is that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah, the forever king who is going to sit David's throne and bring blessing to all nations. It's quite a claim, Matthew. And so he begins to back that claim up by verifying for us that Jesus is who Matthew is telling us that he is. Sort of like uh, when you go to the doctor. Last week I was commenting on how I've had to go to the doctor so much. And when you show up at the reception desk, uh, they ask you, name, you tell them your name, address, phone number, insurance. They want paid after all. But one of the primary things they're doing is they're verifying that you are you. And similar to what Matthew is doing here, he's, he's trying to verify for us in these early chapters the identity of Jesus. He wants us to understand who Jesus is. And so he, he begins doing that for us, what seems to us in an unusual way, with a genealogy. And remember we've said in the ancient world a genealogy functioned a lot like your resume might today. And so in the ancient world they did things like we might do today. They, they tinkered with their resumes. They might leave some things off of your resume, right? You don't include the time you spent as the Chick-fil-A cow uh, or your stint as a sign flipper in front of the, the cell phone store. Likewise, Matthew has tweaked Jesus' resume for us. He's made some obvious omissions and some curious inclusions. The omissions are obvious. They're, they're typically kings or people that would be well-known and would have been you know, familiar to any of his typical Jewish readers. And so like you might know the presidents of the United States, they would know the kings of their past. 
So if I say to you, you know, who's the 10th president of the United States? All of you immediately are going, John Tyler. Got it. Or, or you are immediately going to Google to figure out who it is. Right? Likewise, they could go to the scriptures and discern who their kings were. Matthew is not trying to trick anyone with his omissions. See, the purpose of this genealogy is not chronological precision, but theological argumentation. Matthew is presenting us with Christ, our King. And he has embedded the mission of Jesus in this very genealogy. He's embedded the Gospel in Jesus' royal lineage. See, not only is Jesus qualified to sit the throne of David according to his royal descent, he's also going to be the one who brings the blessing of Abraham to all nations. I'm going to bring your attention to some of those inclusions now in the genealogy. We pointed them out a few weeks ago. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, right? That's Bathsheba. And you go, if you're familiar with first century genealogies, women were not included. This was not a positive thing to do. Very rarely would a woman be included on a genealogy. To include this many of them is really weird. It's even more weird because they're all Gentiles, or at least in Bathsheba's case, have Gentile connections. Remember, she was married to Uriah, uh, the Hittite. Moreover, these women were scandalous. Tamar had to dress as a hooker to trick her father-in-law into fulfilling his obligation to her. Rahab was a prostitute, and, and Ruth, well, she went out in the dead of night to convince Boaz that he ought to propose. Now, even in the case of Bathsheba, we don't know about her willingness uh, in regards to the events that occurred between her and David, uh, but we do know that everyone else would have known. And this would have placed her in this category of scandalous. And so the question comes, why? Why are these women included? King, some of these kings get left out and some of these Gentile women get included. I think the answer is this. That Jesus is the king not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. He is Savior not just of a Jewish people, but of all people from all nations. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He saves, not just, you'll notice if you are familiar with the names in the genealogy, He doesn't save just anyone. He saves unrighteous people. Evil men and scandalous women. He saves prostitutes and outsiders. Kings and murderers. And everything in between. Jesus is the King who saves all kinds of people. He saves His people from their sins. Matthew makes us aware of that in verse 21. That's why He's named Jesus after all. For because He will save His people from their sins. You go, who, who are His people? His people are everyone who believes in Him. Matthew goes further at the end of chapter 1 and tells us that Jesus is not just qualified to be king, not just king of the nations, not just savior of his people. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He continues 
outlining for us Jesus' qualifications in chapter 2, when he takes us on a geographical journey in the life of the infant Jesus. He moves all around, and you go, Matthew, why are you telling us where Jesus lived and moved in his infancy? Because he's about to jump 30 years forward. So, so this must be important, and it, it is. There, there is theology in the geography. You see, Jesus has to flee for his life. Herod has ordered the extermination of all the children in Bethlehem where he was born in fulfillment of prophecy. And so he has to go down into Egypt. And then eventually, Matthew tells us, that he's called out of Egypt. And we see that, that note in verse 15. Uh, this was so, it would be fulfilled what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Who else did God call out of Egypt? Well, his people Israel. Matthew, throughout his gospel, presents us with Jesus as the true Israel. He goes on, he takes us to Nazareth, and you go, uh, you, you see that note in verse 22, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. We talked about this uh, last week, and went, there, there's not a, a straight-up prophecy that says the Messiah is going to be born in Nazareth. So what is Matthew talking about here? And there are two suggestions that I think are worthy of note that go together. Now, one is, is that the Messiah would be rejected, just as all the prophets before him were rejected. And so he would come from a place that was despised. Nazareth was um, a little bit like uh, New Jersey or Cleveland. Uh, people didn't like it there. It was despised, right? Remember, Philip says, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Gross. And the answer ultimately was yes. But the idea here is that Nazareth was a place that was despised. And then the second suggestion is this. Uh, Nazareth has an an assonance with the word for branch in Isaiah chapter 11. If you remember that, uh, branch is a designation for the Messiah who is to come, who will have the Holy Spirit rest on him, which is something we're going to see in our text this morning, which comes right on the heels of the end of chapter 2. And so uh, all that in mind, all those identifications of who Jesus is should be in our minds as we come to this odd man and his message at the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, where we find him declaring the kingdom is coming. Look with me at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Who is this wild man out in the wilderness? We should be a little familiar with him if we've read some of our other Gospels, right? Luke introduces us to him but before Jesus. He is a, a miracle child himself. Remember, Zechariah gets called up to work in the temple. He is an elderly and a godly man married to an elderly and godly woman, Elizabeth. And while he's in the temple, an angel appears to him and says, Look, I know you have been childless all these years, and you're past the age of childbearing, well, your wife is, but y'all are going to have a baby. And Zechariah says, uh, 
you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm old, and my wife is, um, she's well advanced in years. That's how the Bible says women are old. She's well advanced in, in years, and so this can't happen. The angel makes him mute until the birth of the child. And when John the Baptist is born, Zechariah begins to prophesy about both him and the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 1, verse 76. This is what he says. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. John is not just any wild man out in the wilderness. He is the prophet of the Most High. He is the new Elijah prophesied hundreds of years before by Malachi. Indeed, we are to understand he is the voice howling in the wilderness from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 2, which is quoted for you there in verse 3. The one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And you'll notice there, the one he is preparing the way for is the Lord. God. And then you have this weird note, verse 4, about his, his dress, his fashion. I was talking last night with some of my friends about how fashionable I am and, and how um, you know, I'm really, really up to date on those sorts of things. You know, uh, Crocs are cool. And you know, John the Baptist probably would have agreed with me, right? He's got camel's hair and telling us about his food or locusts and, and honey. This isn't a superfluous insertion to just tell us about his dress. Matthew intends for us to make this connection. You know who else dressed in this odd way? It is Elijah. We are to understand that this man, John, is the prophet who comes to prepare the way for the Lord, the Messiah. He's the prophet like Elijah who was promised. Therefore, we ought to heed his message as he proclaims that the kingdom is coming. Look again at verse 2. We consider his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You go down to verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. This is really incredible. But we do, I think we should ask, well, what is this repentance that he's calling people to? And this is a very Christian word, and so I'm going to give you the opportunity to participate today and think about it. And I guess you could shout out if you wanted, but, but, but think about how you would explain repentance to somebody. What is repentance? I'll tell you what one commentator says. Repentance indicates a change of direction in a person's life. 
rather than a simple mental change of attitude or feeling or of remorse. It signifies turning away from a sinful and godless way of life. I love the way another, another guy put it. He says, repentance means the radical recognition of God. Like that. The radical recognition of God. It's turning away from self towards God. And so what, what John is saying here to the people is, is turn your lives around. Come home to the God who you were made for. Repent. Turn. And the reason that the people need to repent, the grounding for it in verse 2 there, is because the kingdom is at hand. Right? So let me say, turn around because here comes the kingdom. It's upon you right now. And you go, well, what is the kingdom? What does that mean? And there has been tons of theological ink spilled over that. But the consensus now is actually quite simple. The kingdom is God's rule. Wherever you find God's rule, you find God's kingdom. And this is to be distinguished from His ultimate governing of all things, quite obviously. But where we find God ruling in His people, we find the kingdom. The kingdom is related to the king. So we ask ourselves, why, if the kingdom is coming, why is repentance necessary? If, if heaven is breaking into earth, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is coming in, it's breaking into earth, but why is repentance necessary? Well, because with the kingdom comes judgment. Because God is holy. And judgment comes, and this is what's really we can't miss about this text. It comes not just to those people out there, those Gentiles. The judgment of the kingdom is coming to the Jews in here. The judgment of God is coming even to the descendants of Abraham. All of Jerusalem and Judea and the region of Jordan are going to him and they're being baptized, confessing their sins. They're Repenting, they're recognizing that their inclusion in the people of God, their being rescued from God's wrath, isn't based on their corporate identity with Israel through birth, but rather by their personal confession and repentance. Piper says this, In other words, baptism was a sign that they were renouncing their old dependency on ethnic Judaism and were relying wholly on the mercy of God to forgive those who confess their sins and repent. See, they're submitting themselves to this baptism as a declaration that they're recognizing they must depend on God's mercy, not their biological descent. And that's a word for you and I as well. None of us is saved by the faith of our parents. None of us is made right with God because we chose the right career or we go to the right church. Or even that we have all the right theology. Having those things is no solution for sin. There is one solution for sin. 
Christ Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. And if we depend on anything aside from the blood of Christ for our salvation, we're out of luck. And the kingdom will come upon us and consume us. We will be judged by God. Our bloodlines cannot make us right with God. Only the blood of the Lamb can make us right with God. That John wants to impress this upon his hearers is highlighted for us in verse 7, which is actually quite sarcastic and a little surprising. Right? All these crowds are coming, his ministries, it's very successful, and so he, he begins his opening um, introduction for his sermon this way. <clears throat> Oh, look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to, to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Yeah. Good morning. Welcome to Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. You snakes, who warned you to come and hear the word of God proclaimed? And this is what John is saying. It is bear fruit in keeping with Repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, here's where he's pressing on their reliance on their biology rather than on their faith in God's mercy and his promises. Don't think that you can say to yourselves, we don't have to worry about any of this. We don't have to worry about the coming kingdom. We don't have to worry about the wrath of God because we're Jews. Right? Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father because I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. God's ability to keep his promises, what John is saying, isn't contingent on him saving you Pharisees and Sadducees. He can raise up Abraham's children from stones and even Gentiles. Judgment will come for you if your mercy, if your faith is not in the mercy of God. Because even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, the fruit of faith and repentance, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Elijah, I mean, John the Baptist, is very fiery and very straightforward. Nobody accused him of sugarcoating the gospel. Then you need to trust in God's provision and promises. And this reminds me so much of Elijah, who we are supposed to kind of be thinking of in the back of our minds during these scenes. My favorite scene from the life of Elijah is this. It comes at Mount Carmel, if you remember it. There's this um, drought that has come on the land because Elijah said, look, you guys are depending on Baal. You think he and, and Mott work together to try to kind of work out life and death, fertility and infertility. I think they are, are sovereign over the land and, and, and rain. And so he says, this is what's going to happen, Ahab. It's not going to rain until I say so. And so a few years go by, and then the time comes for uh, Elijah to set up a confrontation on Mount Carmel. And it's a lot like, a, like if you want to think of like a wrestling match or boxing when that was popular. So they get to Mount Carmel, and, and he says that, you know, in this corner... Ball. 
and his 450 prophets. And in this corner, Yahweh and Elijah, his prophet. And so he says up the competition this way. He says, this is how we are going to discern who is really God. Uh, we're both, I'm going to prepare a sacrifice, all y'all are going to prepare a sacrifice, and we're going to ask our God to answer our prayer and to consume the sacrifice. And the God who answers with fire, well, that's the real God. That's the true God. It seems uh, simple enough. They say, this sounds awesome, let's do it. And the bell rings. And so from the early morning until noon, the prophets of Baal, they, they hoot and they holler and they carry on. And Elijah mocks them. Is your God using the restroom? Perhaps he is asleep. Oh, or, or maybe he's gone on vacation. That's why he's not answering. And they get worked up into a, a frenzy. The prophets of Baal uh, limping around and they, they cut themselves as it's part of their custom to try to get Baal to answer them uh, from heaven. And then in 1 Kings 18.29, we, we read, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Implication, uh, no one was there. No one was listening. Then Elijah has the people dump water all over his altar and the sacrifice there and prays and God answers from heaven with fire. Verse 39, 1 Kings 18. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. See, the, the message of old Elijah and new Elijah is very, very similar. The Lord, He is God. Repent and turn towards Him or you will not escape His wrath. Uh, the kingdom is coming. Uh, repent. And he's speaking specifically at this juncture to those Pharisees and Sadducees. One of the interesting things that jumped out to me this week in verse 7, you, know, you, read, it, you read things a hundred times, you, you brood of vipers. You think about it, go, well, what does that actually mean? Saying, you, you children of snakes. And I can't help but make the connection back to Genesis 3. Where there is a serpent in a garden misleading the people of God. Causing them to trust in themselves and in other things rather than in God Himself. And so, John the Baptist is, is calling these religious leaders, along with all who can listen, to turn from their sins. To stop spreading poisonous lies about who God is and how one can be made right with God. And to trust in the Messiah of God. To trust in John's Lord. He says, and if they don't, there will be judgment. Right, you see this parable in verse, verse 12, but I'll, I'll go back to verse 11 to read. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, that's Jesus, who is coming after me is mightier than I 
whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Just a, a quick note here. When you're around Jesus, it's really hard to be proud. If, if you find yourself going, I feel really proud about myself, and you think it's because you've been around Jesus, you might need to reevaluate if it's Jesus you're around. He brings out humility in his people. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. God's kingdom comes with its king, and his king is good and just and righteous. And what that means is that He uproots and eradicates evil. With the kingdom and the King come the elimination of injustice. I love what Bruner says on this. A coming of the kingdom without judgment for evildoers does not exist except in the imagination of the sentimental. God's wrath doesn't contradict God's love, it proves it. A love that pampers injustice is not lovable. God's goodness and His justice are great. And that actually puts you and I in great danger. Because you and I have done evil things. You and I have done things our way instead of God's way. And despite what the Sinatra song might lead you to believe, that's not a good thing. It's, it's rebellion against God. And it is punishable by death stretched out across eternity in hell. That's how abhorrent your sin is, and it's how great God is. Therefore, the coming of the kingdom is problematic. Yet there is a, that note of hope. Repent. Turn back to God. The accomplishment of the salvation of Christ's people is entirely the mercy of God. Think about just coming out of this Christmas season, what it costs for you, Christian, to be able to call God Father. To know Him as Father rather than as Judge. God the Son had to take a second nature onto Himself and become what He was not while never ceasing to be what He was. He had to become a man so that He might live a perfect life in your place and earn for us and all of His people the blessing of God. So that he might die a substitutionary death in, in your place, in the place of all of his people. And so that he might rise from the dead victorious over death. We cannot isolate Christmas from the crucifixion. We cannot hermetically seal off the incarnation from the atonement. You see, the, the, the Christmas season goes together with the Easter season. Uh, Christmas and crucifixion uh, complete one another. It's part of the, the same plan. Jesus uh, had to 
to accomplish our salvation swim in amniotic fluid, nurse at the breast of his mother, grow, skin knees. To accomplish our salvation, he had to endure betrayal. Nails in his hands, whips across his back, spit upon his face, thorns upon his brow. This is what salvation costs. And though our, our sins are many, His mercy is, is more. This is what is offered. Salvation in Christ is what is offered. Peace with God and His people. A life resurrected from the dead. It's what's offered to all who will repent and put their faith in Christ. And repentance really is, the, Luther said, the whole of the Christian life. Which is why I think we really need to ask ourselves some, some hard questions here. Non-Christians, simply, have I repented? Have I trusted Christ? And if you haven't, put your faith in Him. Christian, I think we ought to do some more soul-searching and ask, have I really repented? Is my repentance real? Because I think there's a temptation to fall into some errors as it relates to repentance. Paul warns us of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation or life without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a counterfeit repentance. You actually see some of it in our text today. I'm going to name three kinds of repentance. Uh, ritual repentance, remorseful repentance, and real repentance. It's real Baptist of me. Love the alliteration, right? Uh, the ritual repentance we would see in the lives of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're in the right place. They're kind of doing the right things. They go through the motions, but there's not any life change. I think when we do this, uh, nowadays we, we might uh, read our Bibles and show up to church and, and do the things that we ought to do turn from particular, you know, this particular sin, that particular sin, but we're not really seeking God. We're just kind of going through the motions. When we do that, we just kind of go through the motions and we're actually at peace with our sin, we will find our consciences are seared and that there is a spiritual deadening occurring within us. If we just go through rituals without ever really examining the sins in our hearts and repenting of those sins, we are tilling up the ground for seeds of a spiritual death that will strangle us once it grows to maturity. We ought not be ritual repenters. Also recognize that remorse is not repentance. There's a sorrow that is worldly and produces death. We see this in the life of Pharaoh. You can read that in Exodus for homework this afternoon if you like. We also see it brightly in the New Testament in the life of Judas. Uh, remember, uh, Judas betrays Jesus, but then he feels really, really bad about it. He gets the blood money back. He feels terrible. And, and then he commits suicide. Feeling really bad about yourself and about what you've done is not repentance. Self-pity is not repentance. 
See, remorseful repentance, which is a counterfeit kind of repentance, it feels really bad about sin. And it looks inward, and it feels really, really bad, but it never looks to Christ and receives His grace. This is a repentance that leads to death. And then, of course, there is real repentance. We see this in the lives of Peter and of Paul. Real repentance sees one's sin and comes to the Lord Jesus with it. Real repentance looks to Jesus. The question is, Christian, is your repentance real? Have you gotten so into a routine, yes, we repent of our sins, of the Christian life, that you, your, your repentance is spiritually dead and you've made peace with, with sin, yet you're, you're not really coming to Jesus on the regular you're not, you're not actually drinking from the wellspring of life. Instead, you are you're drinking dirty water out of broken cisterns. Are you, are you holding on to your sin with a hand behind your back while convincing yourself that you've let go of it and have turned to Christ? Let us be a people who heed John's message to repent to bear fruit in keeping with righteousness. Let us, if, if you've not been baptized, be baptized. Follow Jesus, who will himself be baptized. John brings to us a message of repentance. He says, the kingdom is coming. And now we turn our attention to John's Lord. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is quite the scene. Jesus comes up from the water. Uh, the heavens, the sky is torn open. Uh, the Spirit of God descends upon him and, and the voice of God proclaims, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Spurgeon called this the greatest sermon by the greatest preacher. Christ comes out of the water, the Spirit comes onto Christ, and God the Father preaches, this is my beloved Son. But we do have some questions, don't we? Like, why did Jesus need to be baptized? I'm going to provide you with a few quick ones. First, we see he answers explicitly in verse 15, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does that mean, to fulfill all righteousness? Simply, it's Jesus showing His dedication and submission to the Father's plan and purposes for His life. Secondly, Jesus is baptized to identify with us. What do I mean? 
how do you, if you were watching football yesterday maybe, um, or maybe you don't watch football, how do you, when you think of like a fireman or a policeman, what comes into your mind? And if you're watching on TV, if you're watching football, to go back to that one, how do you know which team is which? That's by, by the uniform, right? What Jesus is doing here in his baptism is, is he's kind of, he's putting on the jersey of humanity. Right? He's already fully man, but he's without sin. What he's saying is, I'm, I'm on this team. This is my team. People, humans, I'm with them. He's saying he is, is with us. Sinners. That's quite remarkable. Matthew is Emmanuel, God with us, from verse 23 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 20 of chapter 28. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. Christian, Jesus is with you. He fights for you. He's on your side. I love what Bruner says. This is Jesus' first adult act in the Gospel. I consider this incident Jesus' first miracle. A miracle of humility. The first thing Jesus does for the human race is go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. Jesus' whole life will be like this. Listen now. It was well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. From his baptism to his execution, Jesus identifies with us at every point. This is incredible. Jesus identifies with us at every point, becoming as completely one with us in our humanity as he is completely one with God in eternity. Jesus is with us. He identifies with us in our sins so that by faith and repentance, we can identify with Him in His righteousness. The great exchange of the cross. He takes our sins, we take His righteousness. We are declared right with God just as if we never sinned. And it's just as if we had done everything right. Jesus identifies with us so we can identify with Him. He's baptized to demonstrate this reality. And He's also baptized so that we might recognize Him as the Son of God. Verse 17, it truly is spectacular. Saying not Jesus isn't just the forever Davidic King who brings the blessing of Abraham to the nations. He isn't just the Savior of His people. He doesn't just kind of bring the presence of God in some ethereal way. He doesn't just fulfill prophecy. He, he is very God of very God. He's the Son of God. Incredible claim from Matthew. This is, the, this is the Christological crescendo of Matthew to this point. He wants us to see who Jesus is and to struggle with that reality. He wants us to say, if this is true, what does that mean for me? If Jesus is the Messiah, and He is the Son of God, that means He's worthy of worship and of repentance. If the kingdom really is coming, and Jesus really is King, 
we need to respond. We need to respond with faith and repentance. That sentence really is spectacular. And Christian, when you are united to Christ by faith, that sentence tells you how God feels about you. You can, you can sub out the word this and put your name there. That's incredible. How does God feel about someone who rebelled against him but has been adopted into his family through Christ? He says, Jerry is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Dennis is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Barbara and Janet, they're my uh, beloved sons with whom I am well pleased. That is an incredible reality. That is the Gospel. We are moved from being slaves to sin to being sons of God. He adopts us. Brother, sister, God loves you in a saving way. This is, deal with the weight of that. If you, if you can get verse 17 into your head and understand that's how God feels about you by virtue of your union with Christ, nothing else matters. Non-Christians, you can get your name in that sentence in verse 17. If you will repent of your sin and trust Christ. Church, let us follow John the Baptist's example and proclaim the good news of the coming kingdom and of its king. Indeed, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. Let us repent and wait for it with hopeful, hopeful expectation. It has been inaugurated already. And it will come in its fullness when Christ returns to make all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Jesus. Pray that You would help us to have a deeper and more intimate understanding of what it means to be your child. What, what Jesus really accomplished for us. We praise you that we can know you as Father rather than as Judge because of your grace, and your mercy, and your love. We ask that your grace would continue to compel us to turn from our sins and towards righteousness. That we would become and practice what we've been declared in Christ, which is holy. Help us to love you more, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.